0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good morning and welcome. My name is Elizabeth Baker Keffrin. I'm Vice President of The Atlantic. And on behalf of The Atlantic and our partners from the University of California, San Diego, I wanted to welcome you to the third annual Atlantic Meets Pacific. What I would like to do is just welcome you again. Pradeep, I thought, did a good job last night. But also uh, echo or mirror the thanks from UCSD to the Atlantic. Uh, Elizabeth Keffer and I met through a mutual friend, Vivian Warren. And uh, we instantly got excited about this idea. But Scott, it took a while at the Atlantic to explain where San Diego was (laughs) why it might be really interesting and how it would what we might do together would complement rather than duplicate all the other extraordinary programs the Atlantic is doing around the country so thank you very much for being here and thank you Elizabeth and Scott for the partnership.
0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Steve Clemens. I'm Washington editor-at-large of The Atlantic. It's a real pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. Deepak, why don't you join me here? Uh, Hello to all of the on-screen viewers. I look at this back screen, and knowing that the ocean and all these surfers are out there, I do think that one of the cool adjustments that we could make in our branding for this is to have an Atlantic stick figure with an Atlantic T-shirt on a UCSD surfboard uh, surfing... Uh, on, on the idea here. It would, it, it, it's, it's what comes to mind. And you know, to some degree, we're going to be spending the next couple of days together, uh, and we are surfing ideas. That's, we're surfing consequential ideas. And I had just uh, put out on Facebook the fact that I was going to be interviewing Deepak Chopra this morning as one of the things in a bucket I thought I never might be doing in my life. <laughs> I wrote a piece recently for The Atlantic, um, just to, to put my credentials on the table, on sloppy... Uh, humanitarianism or sloppy humanitarian interventionism because I'm one of those that thinks that while there are great people out there who want to do great things, oftentimes they don't think in terms of benchmarks, uh, trade-offs, costs and benefit. And I've just begun this new book, Superbrain, by Deepak Chopra and Rudolf Tanzi. Uh, and by the way, Nori, I've had it signed already, uh, first row. Uh, Those of you who are watching online, I'm so sorry. Um, The one difference between being here and being where you are is that everyone in the audience will get your own copy uh, of this new book, uh, courtesy of us. So Superbrain is Deepak's new book, and in it, It's written, uh, both co-written by a person, Rudolph Tanzi is the Joseph uh, P. and Rose F. Kennedy Professor of Neurology at Harvard University and the Director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital. Deepak has shared with me that the next book they're writing is not Super Brain but Super Genes, and we're going to be looking at it. So we're with uh, a man um, who's been called the celebrity guru, written more than 75 books, uh, and frankly is someone who is uh, challenging many of us who live uh, comfortably in what we consider to be the rational. Uh, two years ago you were here with Leonard Mlodinow with uh, uh, The War of Worldviews, another book uh, uh, that you had written, and, and you basically took on each other. And I'd like to just start out before we discuss the book, how's your relationship with Leonard and how's your debate between the rational and, and the not yet understood uh, going? We're
2: very good friends, of course. We still totally disagree with each other. Uh, the paperback has now come out, and the subtitle has been changed. So it's called Where Science and Spirituality Agree and Disagree. I see. So we've changed the subtitle. Well, terrific. Well, As a result of our friendship. That, that, that's,
0: <laughs> so we made, a, we made a small. We had them both here on this very stage two years ago. Um, so you've written this new book, Super Brain, and 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 you are uh, essentially, I think, from what I've just looked at, really trying to look at the uh, how to bridge between maybe what I would what I would probably carelessly call the transcendental and, and real science, real uh, uh, genetic and and brain, you know, physiological um, realities as we know it. Can you share with us what you're doing in this book? I met Rudy at the TED-Med conference, which is
2: uh, used to be held right here in, uh, in San Diego. And uh, we actually met in the men's room after he had finished his talk on Alzheimer's. He's uh, discovered over 100 genes for Alzheimer's, and uh, three of them are predictable. The rest are not predictable in that they're not fully penetrant. So when I uh, met him in the men's room, Uh, I asked him, Rudy, is the brain a noun or a verb? Hmm. And he stopped doing what he was doing. Did he continue it later? I hope so, but we met outside and he (laughs) said, you know, I think it's a verb. And um, we started emailing each other and the result was this book. So what does that mean? The brain is a verb and not a noun. Your brain is originally created by your genes, you know, since every organ in our bodies comes from our genes. But then it is sculpted by experience. Okay, and that's all kinds of experience. Right now, as I'm speaking to you, your frontal cortex is being activated because you're listening to me, absorbing this information, analyzing it, um, reflecting on it, hopefully. So, my thoughts are influencing neural activity in your brain right now. In order to do that, I have to activate your genes because these neural networks are actually neural firings that require protein, etc. So, I'm activating your genes right now in this part of your brain, the frontal cortex. If we were having an emotional conversation, I would be activating your genes in a different part of the brain, the limbic brain. If it was a threatening conversation, it would be the reptilian brain, which is, feels scared. But not only am I activating your, your neural networks, you're activating mine just through your body language, okay? because I'm trying to see how you're responding. But there are people out there watching us on television. We're activating their neural networks. So you start to realize that through the Internet, now we are also creating a global brain, okay? And what is the relationship between our minds and the brain? This is, today it's in science, it's called the mind-body problem or the mind-brain problem. Does the brain produce your mind? Does the mind produce your body? Or are they both the same thing, and arising from a deeper, more fundamental reality. So that's how the conversation started. Of course, everyone here, if they keep up with the literature, they're aware of the word neuroplasticity, which means you can change the structure of your brain, but if you realize it's a verb and not a noun, then you can change it by how your habits of thinking, feeling, behaving, uh, sleep, exercise, all these things influence the structure of your brain. But we are also influencing each other's brains and as a result, each other's biologies. This is ultimate interdependence. I'm actually dependent on you for my well-being and you're dependent on me, how we interact with each other. That's the basis of the book. Our next book is Super Genes, because, according to Rudy, who's the head of Genetics Lab, uh, at Mass General Hospital. Uh, He says that uh, only 5% of disease-related genes are fully penetrant. I hope you understand that, that only 5% of genes are fully penetrant, disease-related. So there are certain genes that predict Alzheimer's, uh, certain rare types of breast cancer, not the vast majority. The rest are influenced by what is called epigenetics, mm-hmm. which means the environment, but the environment also includes our mental environment, our mm-hmm. emotional environment. There's not a single thought that has, doesn't have a representation in the brain, and there's not a single event in the brain that doesn't have a representation in the body. Your genes, your neural networks, your thoughts, your emotions, your biology, your social networks, your personal relationships – in fact, the entire planet, at a fundamental level,
0: is a single activity. So uh, the, the, the holisticness with which you describe um, this challenge and what you're writing about, it, it, it sounds to me, and, and in a way you sort of uh, implied it by talking about the Internet essentially becoming a global brain, if you will. But, but to some of us who sit um, on, on the other side, essentially, where we haven't reached enlightenment yet, I suppose... Uh, it, it looks like you need a supercomputer, that it's very hard for some of us to discriminate and differentiate between those who have tremendous insights and are thinking you know, in, in an arena where you're both melding science and thinking very logically and rationally about how to describe you know, well-being and health and whatnot. But it looks as if it's hard to, for someone like me to benchmark um, the good from the, uh, the, the pretenders. And I'm interested in how you deal with that. I'm sure you've been, been approached before. And that's what's so interesting to me well, about both your own background as a doctor. First of all,
2: yeah. I've been called a pretender. And, you know, a long time ago as a physician, I started telling my patients, I have good news and bad news for you. <laughs> the bad news is you have a bad condition, which has a poor prognosis. And the good news is I'm a quack. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mind being called a pretender. <laughs> But here's where we are. Uh, Here's the state of the art of the science. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, and Pete Ellsworth is here. You know, I know Pete for a long time. His name was mentioned. Actually, I'm in San Diego because of him. I was then practicing medicine in Harvard and Tufts and other institutions, hospitals associated with them. And he brought me to Sharp, um, and that's why I'm here. So thanks, Pete. Uh, When I started talking about consciousness and biology and saying that states of consciousness determine states of biology, that was a strange kind of Mm -hmm. expression. But everyone here knows that if you're angry or hostile or feeling fear or depression or guilt or shame, you don't feel so good in your biology, right? Well, we can measure that now. So everybody knows the biological consequences of stress. You know, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, cortisol levels go up, immune function drops, hormone levels change. But now we also know that if you're in love or you're feeling happy for whatever reason, that there's a shift in your levels of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, opiates, which we now actually know. These are common words. What is even more interesting is that now thanks to some very great scientists in this area at Scripps, and, uh, uh, you know, we have Eric Topol, for example, the professor of digital medicine at Scripps, Mm -hmm. who says that with a little patch on your your chest, it's easy to monitor blood pressure, um, heart rate, heart rate variability, stress levels, skin resistance, brain waves, uh, skin temperature. So... I can put a patch on you, Steve, and if you have an iPhone, this is off right now, but if it's on, it can pick up your biological parameters and transmit these uh, wirelessly to Scripps or whatever institution. You, I,
0: I should mention, I mean, this is a very important, uh, and I'm not saying it to be nice to our, our sponsor, Qualcomm, but Qualcomm's actually doing something exactly like this. Sure, but I mean, this is but the in new Africa, technology they're going to help people who monitor. You heart can monitor and, uh... your digitally, your
2: biolog- biological state right now and correlate it with your emotional and mental state and your state of consciousness right this moment. And you can transmit it. Now, because we are all biofields, you understand biofields? We all, pre- you know, every part of our body, every cell of our body actually has an electromagnetic field that it transmits. Okay, so if I'm at peace, happy, my biofield is going to be very different from yours if you're feeling hostility or anger. I'm not. Okay, but if you were, okay, if you were, and our biofields are going to interfere with each other, okay, and create what is called an interference pattern. So. We can create an interference pattern with everyone's biofields here. The state of awareness in this room. Okay, we all hear the expression, I went into this room and it was very stressful. The atmosphere, it was you could cut it through a knife. It was so tense. Or I went to this holy temple or the shrine and I felt at peace. Well, now we can biologically measure that. Not only we can measure that, we can correlate it with your biology, with your mental state, your state of consciousness. And if people are watching us, their biofields can be affected. So it should be possible in the near future, and I'm going out on a limb, to correlate states of consciousness with states of biology and create mathematical algorithms that will correlate that with crime, with hospital admissions, with traffic accidents, Mm. with social unrest, with quality of leadership. So I can tell you intuitively, at this moment, the biofield of Syria is not a coherent biofield. Or of Washington, D.C., for that matter, (laughs) is certainly not coherent. What does that mean for the state of the world? So, you know, I come from a tradition which says that who you are Shout so loudly in my ears I can't hear what you're saying and that's from Emerson too okay? your state of being determines not only your biology but everything that's happening around you so in, in the Vedic scriptures they say when a person is totally established in peace consciousness all beings around him cease to feel hostility not by what he or she says or they do but just their state of being and we are living in a wonderful age where technology can
0: help us digitally monitor this. You know, it might be a great experiment to see what would happen if we could get you to Washington on stage with Ted Cruz and Harry Reid. Um, it, would be, it, it would be interesting.
2: I, I would hope that they would shut up.
0: You know, I want to say, yeah, yeah, the... Uh, uh, for those of you uh, through the entire conference, tomorrow morning, I'm, I'm really drilling into this issue. Ramesh Rao, who is the director of Cal IT2, is going to spend 15 minutes with me tomorrow uh, talking about quantifying bliss. So it's very, very close uh, to this to this topic. He's one of the real uh, stars here at UC San Diego, and we're going to be going to... The... I've been looking at his data research on meditation, on you know various states of anxiety, and how it uh, is creating physiological uh, approaches and how one can do this. So So you got to understand, I may be writing a book called The Skeptical Transcendentalist, but we'll see how that goes. Um, I just want to share one little piece of information. We just had
2: UCS, scientists at UCSD, UCSF and Harvard, uh, measure the enzyme telomerase, which is the enzyme that determines your biological clock uh, in a group of um, meditators at our center here who were there for a one-week program. And the results are not yet published, but they're very exciting. I'm not at liberty to tell you what exactly the findings are without the permission of the scientists, but they will really break breakthrough results showing that your mental state
0: influences your biological clock. How interesting. Um, just a few weeks ago, you launched uh, here mm-hmm. in Southern California the Consciousness Initiative, and would love to hear a little bit about that, and then we'll move to um, questions from all of you to Deepak Chopra. Okay, so this is going to be the last question.
2: So the two major questions in science today, open questions in science, which means to which we have no answers. The first is, what's the nature of the universe? Okay? And the reason we don't have an answer is that 70% is dark energy. We have no idea what it is. 25% 25% is dark matter, no idea what it is, because it doesn't interact with uh, light. It's non-atomic, so it doesn't reflect light, um, absorb light, emit light. So we can't interact with it. How do we know it exists? It bends space-time in the same way as regular matter. So it's the most of the gravity of the universe, including the gravity that's holding your body together right now. 96% of the universe, therefore, is unobservable, empirically. The remaining 4% is atomic, which is made up of subatomic particles that seem to be non-material things that come in and out of an emptiness. So the atomic universe is made out of nothing, basically. So what's the universe? What's the stuff of the universe?
0: We have no idea. Can I read this quote from you? Until we can show how molecules learn to think or how thoughts create molecules, the full truth about nature and reality will remain hidden.
2: So that's the first hidden reality. We do not know the nature of existence. And by existence, I mean that which exists. You, me, this table, the stars, galaxy, we don't know what's the stuff. The second thing we don't know is what is awareness. So there is existence and there's awareness of existence. Because if you didn't have awareness of existence, then for all practical purposes, there's no existence because you're not aware of it, right? These are the two most fundamental questions of existence. What is it and why are we aware of it? And science has no answer at this moment. Okay. so the two competing views are consciousness is a product of your brain Mm -hmm which is the classical, mechanistic. If you believe that model, then molecules create mind. And it's mechanistic, and you have no free will. You're a biological robot. Okay. Now that robotics is becoming so popular, many people believe that we are biological robots. There's no room here for free will, creativity, insight, intuition, imagination, choice, Anything that makes us human, there's no room. It's so all
0: just a subject of, of, of variation. Mechanistic and, laws. And, yeah, yeah right. mechanistic laws.
2: The other view is that actually awareness is fundamental in the universe. And don't confuse awareness with perception. Right now I'm conscious of you as a result of perception, right? But when you were a single cell at the moment of conception, that cell was alive. That cell was present. That cell was aware. It self differentiated into a body and a brain and the experience of the world. So the other view is awareness is fundamental in the universe. These are the two worldviews that are competing with each other at the moment and we'll see how they evolve.
0: And that that is what you're working on
2: in the initiative? What we have is a scientific initiative to get the mathematics, to get the physics, and the neuroscientists to work together. That's part of the initiative. But the second part, you know, it's very difficult to get funding for these big ideas. The second part is how does it matter, you know? And that's where the digital medicine and all these ways of measuring well-being Today, the number one trend in the world for understanding the way we behave and even economics is well-being. So well-being is not physical well-being only. It's also social well-being, community well-being, career well-being, financial well-being. Forget spiritual well-being for the moment, but these things are very easily measurable. I'm a senior scientist at Gallup. We measure this on a daily basis today today the well-being of the united states is number 13 in the world okay and uh, the well-being of places like syria maybe it's uh, gone
0: down a notch the market is maybe it
2: has today. maybe it has yeah. but you know it's measurable you can take this well-being and correlate it with everything that you want to it's all mathematical with gdp etc and uh, you know the the state of leadership you can see what's happening. What was happening in Libya, Egypt? We were able to monitor that before the crises occurred uh, at Gallup. That is, so if you understand that well-being is the number one predictor of the future for a community, society, nation, and the world, where the state of well-being is very poor right now. Fifty percent of the world lives on less than two dollars a day. They're not well. Okay, poverty is a state of of physical anguish, too. So, and 20% lives on less than $2 a day. So well-being correlates with social justice, economic justice, sustainability, and everything else that we consider valuable. So that
0: will be the practical aspect. You know, I, I do want to go to the audience. Do we have microphones uh, out there? So uh, put your hand. But let me, while we're waiting for hands to go up, and there are a couple. Let me ask you just one quick response to question that I made, because you have a geneticist at Harvard, working with you. We've referred to a couple of scientists at UC San Diego, and you've been at this now for a long time. Are you finding the uh, academy, those in academia that are in cutting-edge science, at, at, at today as compared to, say, 10 years ago, are you finding science more and more comfortable uh, itself in exploring the kinds of things you're laying out? Is it is it less something that people feel like they're taking a risk in hanging out at the... Chopra Center for Well-Being?
2: Well, it's the younger scientist. Rudy mm. is a fully tenured professor at Harvard. Um, he's a chaired professor at Harvard Medical School. But he's also 20 years younger than I am. And that makes a difference. He mm. comes from a different mindset. My generation is still very reductionist, mm. mechanistic science. Mm. So it's not science and spirituality. Forget spirituality for now. It's, it's science as we To understand it today, is it a complete science? And Mm -hmm. the answer is it's not, because it looks at bits and pieces when it should be looking at everything, including consciousness, because, Mm -hmm. you know, consciousness is the elephant in the room. We couldn't have this conversation without consciousness. You can't do a scientific experiment Mm -hmm. without consciousness. You know, so consciousness is where science happens. Experiments are designed in consciousness, conceived in consciousness... Experiments are done in consciousness. Observations are made in consciousness. We need to understand what is this thing that we call consciousness.
0: Uh, considering that I'm only human and you're only human, and according to quantum physics, sometimes you're here and sometimes you're not. Are you monitoring yourself and putting it out on the web where we could actually go and visit and see an interpretation of your biological and biophysical State.
2: At this moment, I'm only monitoring what's easily available, but we have a study coming up in the next month, and we'll all be monitoring ourselves and people who participate in some of the programs that we do at the center. Now, of course, that would be digital monitoring, but I monitor myself all the time, even at this moment. I'm aware of the observer, wherever that observer is, okay? So I'd like you to try an experiment right now as you're listening to me. You're listening to me? Turn yourself, turn your attention to who's listening. There's a presence there. The mystery is we can't find it anywhere, okay? If I went inside your body, your brain, your biology, I can't find the observer. Which means only two things. Either it's in the hallucination, it doesn't exist, or it's non-local, it's not in space-time. You know, So many uh, scientists like Daniel Dennett, cognitive right. scientist, he says it's a hallucination, that the observer is a hallucination, it's an illusion produced by your brain. It's a trick of your brain. Well, if he's right, then so is everything else a trick of your brain. right? This world is a trick of your brain too.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I know there are many other questions and wish that we could extend time and, and consciousness and awareness of each other uh, to do this. Um, I'm really looking forward to exploring uh, your book, Superbrain, and I very much look forward to the supergene, which is we, last year uh, we focused so much on uh, genetics, and we had... Uh, the folks from National Geographic that had looked at sort of migration. they are whole other levels of sort of science and exploration of who and what we are. Well, I hope I think we can bring Rudy here to yeah, talk about super genes. We'd be terrific. we commit to that. I think we can commit to that. It would bring Rudy out next year. But uh, please join me in thanking Deepak Chopra. Deepak, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.